Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpare, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Brendan O'Brien, who is the author of Homesick, Why Housing is Unaffordable and How We Can Change It from Chicago Review Press. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, So before we home in on the book, um, let me ask you if you will tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what it is that brought you to this project. Sure. Um, I would say the long story short is I worked in public lands for several years and I just kept noticing two trends that were happening kind of concurrently. And so at at the same time that you had record visitation coming to national parks, coming to these national forest areas, uh, you also had housing prices spiking and uh it was it was kind of a mixed bag uh for the communities because yes they wanted more tourists to come and many of the livelihoods that they were dependent on were uh, th- that they were um relying relying upon were coming from shops and stores and restaurants and bars and hotels all those things but then housing prices were being driven up so much that locals couldn't afford to live in these places. And then I finally got to, I decided to go back to grad school. Uh, and there's, uh, yeah, a lot behind that decision, but I kept, uh, seeing that when I moved to Flagstaff, Arizona, starting a, uh, geography master's program at Northern Arizona university. And, I saw signs everywhere that said homes, not hotels. And I was like, there's something to this. And so I just kind of followed it. So to um, oversimplify what what is a a rich and and complex story that you tell throughout the book, this winds up being a story. The answer to your question of why is it that particularly you see uh, this spiking in home prices and and decline in availability is the the rise of the short-term rental market. It's Airbnb, right? Correct. That's a big part of it. Um, So... um, Walk us through this. For folks, I mean, I assume that folks know, but just in case they don't, talk a little bit about sort of what this, these short-term rental apps are and how they function. And then tell us a little bit about how it is that they wind up having those local effects on both housing and availability. Sure. So short-term rentals started out, well, they've been around for a long time, uh, but they really became... Uh, entered the level of prevalence that they're at today uh, around the Great Recession, so 2007, 2008, 2009, and that was when Airbnb was founded. And it was when people were getting smartphones, when suddenly people were looking for cheaper lodging, they were looking for alternative uh, 
means of income. And so they turned to Airbnb and Airbnb kind of became the poster child of the sharing economy, so to speak. I'll put that in quotes. Uh, but it was the idea that, oh, you have an empty room in your house. You can rent that out. Uh, you have something that's not being put to use. You can share that essentially. Um, but in practice, what ended up happening is that these empty rooms turned into empty houses entirely, uh, in many areas throughout the country, uh, such as biggest cities, you have more than half of all the short-term rentals offered are entire homes. They're not rooms. They're not private rooms or shared rooms. Uh, and then oftentimes they're, uh, offered up for the bulk of the year. And then in some places like Flagstaff, for instance, it's closer to 90% of all the short-term rentals are the entire home. And so when you have that, that really cuts off the market. Um, so if you have a limited supply of homes, uh, say you have a hundred homes and suddenly within a matter of years, you have 10 that are put up as short-term rentals. They cater to visitors, cater to a short-term um, lodging uh, desire instead of long-term residents. And those long-term residents are left with fewer to work with, so they have uh, rising prices. And then all the landlords that were providing housing for those uh, long-term residents, uh, all the homes that would have been on the market catering to long-term residents, suddenly it's gone global in scope. So they can now cater to uh, visitors from across the country and world for that matter. And uh, second homeowners, investors, and then even uh, getting into uh, remote workers. We're seeing a big change with that right now. And because of the, the geography of a lot of the places that, that you focus on, because of this sort of global market, you're able to uh, you're able to appeal to people who have higher incomes and greater wealth than the locals, right? And that's part of the dynamic that allows you to charge more and that pushes up local real estate prices more generally in the area. Is that right? Right. So short-term rentals aren't a problem to the same degree everywhere. So where I grew up in Davenport, Iowa, uh, you can look on different sites. There's a, uh, one resource that I rely on and a lot of uh, short-term rental studies will rely on is airdna.co. Co. And uh, because Airbnb and uh, Verbo and all these short-term rental sites don't provide the information about their numbers, uh, sites like these have popped up and they're kind of filling that gap, not, not as well as uh, we would hope in getting valuable data but um, yeah so in a place like Davenport short-term rentals aren't having this extreme impact but in a place like Flagstaff uh, a little bit smaller and land bound uh, bound by uh, the geography in terms of the mountains and national forests around here 
there's a limit to how much can be built within here. Not to say that we've reached that limit, but when you suddenly uh, open up uh, the housing stock, all the housing available to this global uh, segment of the population who uh, not only can they afford more because they may make more money and have other revenue streams, but they also are in town just for a weekend. So they're willing to pay more. Like when you travel, you're willing to pay differently as opposed to if you're living in a place. And it really, when you put those those people in direct competition with each other, locals lose every time. And one of the other things that you talk about, one of the consequences of this is, is not merely the economic, but it's also the effect that this has on neighborhood and community. Can you talk just a little bit about, about what you see happening there? Yeah, so that was something that really struck me um, personally in living in these places. Uh, I've had short-term rentals in my neighborhoods that I've lived in. Uh, I've struggled from the economic side to find more affordable housing because I know that short-term rentals and investor-owned properties, which is kind of a, the larger topic that I get into yeah. later in the book, um, are having a big impact. But there's also that community aspect. Uh, I I feel very lucky where I grew up. I knew my neighbors. My parents lived in the same house. They still live in that house that I grew up in. Uh, and so they, they build up community and it's, it's little things that, uh, kind of multiply over time. So it might start out, Oh, can you watch our dog while we're gone? Can you, uh, do you have any sugar available? Those simple little things. Um, but it adds up to feeling secure in your home, knowing that you can trust people, uh, if things are going wrong or if they're going right and you want to share it with it, people, um, you belong to a community. And that was actually when I was interviewing people, I interviewed real estate agents, I interviewed city officials, uh, compliance agents, politicians, people from kind of across the spectrum. And they, they operate in that role but first and foremost, they're members of the community and they talked about the impact personally. And that, that really hit home for me. Uh, I had people who talked about walking their dog around and moving to that neighborhood and they now don't see as many people that they recognize. They, they see strangers, they see empty homes, um, and they're trying to navigate a place that's changing all the time when that's not what they moved into. So you made reference earlier to, to the, the people putting signs up in their yard, beginning to, to push against these kinds of policies. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about uh, uh, local efforts uh, to, to regulate or even ban these short-term rentals and then, then the impediments that they face. And I have in, in uh, mind here your discussion of Arizona Senate Bill 1350 and, and similar uh, efforts in Utah. Can you talk a little bit about what local communities have tried to do to regulate or ban this and then the, the kinds of obstacles that they have encountered? 
Definitely. So I would say there's two general categories in which uh, neighbors and long-term residents are confronting the issue. One is from the immediate impact. So people are mad about parking. They're mad about trash. They're mad about noise. Um, and all of those things are really valid things. And if you had a next door neighbor who was throwing a, a party, not just every weekend during the week, um, if you had next door neighbors who routinely had 15 cars parked out front, or you have uh, really bizarre things where people are uh, jumping off of rooftops into pools, or people are peeing outside, or they're accumulating trash. People are definitely mad about that aspect. Um, and as far as Arizona goes, there have been some efforts made on that because uh, the the state realized that it kind of, with 1350, they may have made it too broad where you can't do anything to because that bill like literally eliminated localities ability to regulate these short-term rentals at all correct yes yeah and so they uh anything there there were laws on the books before about responding to noise complaints and stuff but it made it very difficult to follow up on as far as short-term rentals go so you could, uh, you could, if you had a noise complaint and you wanted to prove it was a short-term rental and have that offense tied to that house, um, so they would get a fine or whatnot, you would have to, you could look online and see, oh yeah, Airbnb, this is the exact house, but the state in Arizona and in Utah and some other places, They've done, uh, <laughs> they've made a very liberal use of the law to say, oh, no, that's just freedom of speech. You can put up ads to advertise your house as a short term rental. So you could go to that house and talk to the guest and say, is this a short term rental? Are you staying there? And sometimes you still wouldn't be able to prove that. You would need more documentation and the, the fact that this, this absolutely blew my mind the fact that it was listed yeah. on airbnb right as a location and that right. the the people who were occupying the home at the time said yes i am renting this short term in some instances would not constitute evidence that it was a short-term rental exactly so it's just like <laughs> it's it's laughable if it wasn't impacting people's just lives awful. So much. yeah yeah right? um so that's there have been some efforts in Arizona specifically to address those complaints. Um, but as far as the impact on, on affordable housing, uh, it's still cities and counties, any, any, uh, any, uh, district smaller than the state is banned from making quota quotas or limits on the number of short-term rentals passing taxes that would limit how many are in existence. And so, uh, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a big issue and it just kind of feeds into all these other aspects. So when 
when talking about short-term rentals, the way I approach it started out as my master's thesis, and I was going to study the impact of short-term rentals on housing in Western mountain towns. And my advisor said, my advisor said, great, that sounds good. And he uh, gave some feedback and that was February of 2020. And then I just kept expanding on that because uh, short-term rentals, while they took a hit in 2020 with COVID, they expanded in places where people felt like they could get out and away from the city and have extra space, spaces like these mountain towns that I was actually studying. And uh, I started realizing, well, why are there so many entire home short-term rentals? And the answer is because there are a lot of empty entire homes. And so you get into uh, the fact that there are just so many second homes and non-primary homes. And then this kind of fed into a nationwide issue that's happening all over the place, not just in uh, these smaller mountain towns and tourist attraction towns, but places like Atlanta, Phoenix, Charlotte, uh, they're having record numbers of investors buy up properties. And the properties they are going for especially are single family dwellings. So the houses that people would want to move into and especially uh, gearing toward lower income ones. So there's a lot of flipping of houses. There's a lot of holding on to them in so-called hot markets where uh, the price is just going up and up and up. And so uh, it's investors are really driving part of this. Um, right. Yeah. And, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just to say that, that you know, that, that's it was where I wanted to go next is that, you you know, you taught some of this is, you know, people with the means buying second homes and then, you know, renting them out when they're not occupying them. But more and more, it seems that we're looking at the involvement of uh, organizations like Blackstone and private equity firms who are are literally turning housing into a commodity like any other and using uh, the the crisis both of of the housing crash in 2009-2008 and and covid uh, to exploit those who are 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 most adversely affected right is, is that am i overstating the case or is that a fair summary of where we are no that's that's exactly it and i that's one thing that i i try to push back against in the book because there's this national narrative happening right now because you had so many people buying houses during COVID and then uh, people are like, oh, well, there just aren't enough homes. And that's true. Uh, there's there's definitely an aspect of that. There's an aspect where there are uh, really, really tedious permitting uh, required within municipalities, but you can't just build your way out of this because what I want to state clearly is that this is a priority issue. It's not just a supply issue. And so you have uh, cities competing for the same higher income residents 
in high-income high buyers and sellers. And so for a lot of cities, they, they get locked into this where they, they are doing everything they can to attract buyers and increase their housing market. Uh, but uh, one, people get into their house and you have rules going back a hundred years, many of which are tied to race as well as economics that give existing, existing homeowners incredible power to nix multi-unit properties. So you get uh, neighborhoods entirely full of single family homes. And so there, there is definitely something to be said that there, uh, that we should increase the supply of homes. But the reason that we haven't increased the supply of homes, the reason that uh, developers, homeowners, cities, states, the federal government across the board has not uh, increased the supply of homes to make it more affordable is because many of these entities don't want it to be affordable. They want to drive up the cost of housing. And that's what happens when you treat it like a commodity and for something so foundational to building a family, to community, to health, to safety, to uh, economic well-being, every part of life as housing, you can't do that. It just, it erodes, uh, it erodes the community. And, and driving up prices all the better if the people you're selling to who are going to occupy the property, right, higher higher prices means means higher taxes, but they're not going to have, they're not going to be permanent residents, so they're not going to be, say, for example, sending their kids to the public schools, right? So you're not worried about whether you have capacity in those other kinds of spaces, right? So you've got this perverse incentive for some localities to prefer short-term over permanent residents? Right. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, you see it happening in communities all over the place uh, where you have schools closing or schools reducing enrollment or consolidating because they, more people are moving to the area uh, or housing prices are going up, rent prices are going up, you're getting more tourists, uh, so more money flowing into the community, but the, the from a de, the developer standpoint to neighborhoods, to cities, there's kind of this, uh, yeah, this, this desire to lower the costs of services. What's the best way to do that? Find people who don't use the services, uh, and then, uh, increase the, money flowing in, but what it, it's a very short term thinking. And what ends up happening is that you get all these things in place, uh, such as, so people are drawn to the area because there are nice roads and there are installations and there are uh, beautiful parks, but all those things are built by people who live in that place. And they're maintained by people who live in that place and the uh, collection of money that's coming in. And so you get this, uh, this speaks to a national issue that gets into uh, 
wealth inequality and kind of the privatization of public goods. And so people come in and they move for these public goods. Uh, and then they're like, well, I don't use a swimming pool. Uh, I, I don't, this, I don't want people driving on my road. And so they want public financing for these things, but they don't want to pay taxes on it. So they argue for uh, lower lower cost to themselves and uh, uh, greater benefit, uh, more concentrated benefit to them and people they see as like them. And on, on top of that, right, you've got, you know, those folks are coming in because whatever they want, the, the restaurants or the ski resorts or, or whatever, but the, the people who actually do the work, the servers and the people who maintain those facilities, they can't afford to live there, right? So they're being pushed further and further away, right? So this, this surely is not sustainable, it seems to me. No, and that's, that's where short-term rentals really become kind of a good analogy for our whole economy because you have this short-term model of thinking and when you turn anything over to uh, a profit incentive first and foremost whether that's healthcare, whether that's uh, retirement accounts where people have switched from uh, instead of getting uh, a pension or government backed uh, collectively backed retirement accounts, they get it from their employer. Um, so they're looking for short-term gains and individualized gains. And when you turn it over to that, it's the long-term effect is that people lose out. And uh, this, it really relates to a, a focus of the book. So I kind of divided it into three sections. The first section is where we're where we are, so describing the state of housing in the country. And the second section was uh, how we got here, where we were. Um, third section being where we're going, which is kind of giving two different perspectives based on what's happening now and how we can change it. Um, but the second section is really key to all this, and that's the history of housing. And there's there's been this long-term history of excluding people who are not seen as worthwhile residents. Um, and short-term rentals are a rough approximation for that analogy where you're getting outside wealth, gaining access to an area that was uh, a stable community. And the outside wealth always has uh, priority over that existing community. And so that that has happened time and time again. And uh, repeatedly, it's non-white people, it's uh, native peoples, it's black people, it's new immigrants who are the ones who suffer most of all. So what's the alternative? What do you, what do you think we should do about this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, well, one of the biggest things is just we've turned housing into a commodity. We need to stop. <laughs> to, to sum it up. Um, well, there you go. Problem yeah, solved. So how do we do simple. that? Right. <laughs> um, well, it, 
there, and this gets into um, one of the reasons that I push back so much against this argument that, oh, we just have a supply shortage. We just need to right, build that we more. We can build our way out of this. Yeah. If we just build more, uh, there's, there's just, it, it, housing has become a place where people park their money with the hope of uh, and endlessly uh, accumulating uh, wealth through that. And it's, if you just build more housing, it's going to continue to do that, especially with remote work. Cities are still competing for these people uh, who can make more money. Uh, there's been, throughout history, there's been kind of a lack of uh, direction from the federal government and from state governments as far as housing and affordable housing is concerned. And whenever there has been federal incentives, they've been done to placate the market. And so the market always has free reign to raise the price of houses. If the federal government is making public housing, uh, in the past, public housing used to be very, very, uh, very reliable, very um, uh, desirable, even, even for middle-class people because that market wasn't building for those people. Um, and so you can do a couple different things. Uh, you can do a lot of different things, but two that I offer in the book are alternatives to the market. So you can have public housing that is mixed income. So you have people who are higher income. Maybe you have a third of the all residents in the house who are higher income, a third who are around the, uh, the median income for that area and then a third who are below it. And public housing, uh, and that can be a lot of things. It can be city-owned, state-owned, uh, federally-owned, nonprofit-owned, neighborhood association-owned. There are a lot of models, um, but it doesn't have to be a money sink. Uh, so you can have these mixed-income communities. And then people, the other side of that is that people don't, uh, they don't become scared of the other. They don't become scared of uh, poor people moving into their neighborhood, which is something that gets cited a lot, uh, usually when people are asked anonymously, because people don't want to say that. But uh, there's communities exist because, uh, because you have construction workers, you have teachers, you have lawyers, you have doctors, you have uh, politicians, you have people in all uh, stages of life. And when you restrict it to one area, it really becomes uh, just, I compare it to a race to the top where you're always trying to find someone who will pay more. And at some point that will crash and it does in different areas. Um, the other alternative that I wanted to mention quickly is uh, community land trusts. So that's a, a model of home ownership where uh, you, you own the house and you can make changes to it. You can uh, make whatever improvements you want. You are, you can pass it on to uh, your kids. 
but you have a 99 year lease or it, it can be done different ways, but oftentimes it's a 99 year lease on the land that it sits on. And what that does is it keeps it affordable from one generation to the next, from one homeowner to the next. And you don't get these skyrocketing uh, returns because it's not seen as simply an investment to flip and make a profit on. It's seen as something where you can build community, you can build a family, you can have a stable life. You don't have to worry about uh, your landlord making making fixes or not, raising the price or not, kicking you out or not. Um, you're you're in that home uh, until you decide that you want to leave, and then the equity that's tied to the house instead of going up astronomically or dropping astronomically, which it can during uh, a major uh, crash or recession, which we've seen, uh, well, too much in my relatively short life, uh, but uh, <laughs> you, you're you stable. So it's tied more to, uh, well, inflation when it makes sense. So more recently, you wouldn't have housing prices gain by 8%. Uh, it would be tied to that. And so you still make some money when you go to sell it. Uh, but the biggest thing is that you can afford it to begin with. And if you can afford it better, then much less of your, uh, of your monthly expenses are tied up in your interest rates and all these things. So you can spend it on saving. You can start a business. You can uh, send your kids to school. You can go on that family vacation. You can feel a little more secure. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Brendan O'Brien, who is the author of Homesick, Why Housing is Unaffordable and How We Can Change It from Chicago Review Press. Uh, and if you would like to hear more of what he articulates there by way of policy solutions, both at the individual, local and federal level, I encourage you very much to check out the book. I think it really is a useful way, as Brendan has said it, as the way we've talked about this, to push back against the idea that building more housing alone is how we solve this increasingly dire, dire housing crisis in America. So I very much encourage you to check out the book, Homesick. Brendan O'Brien, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much, Stephen.